Okay, give me great pleasure to introduce Katrina Bonfiglioli, um, who's visiting Oxford at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. She's a senior lecturer at the University of Technology in Sydney, um, and she's going to talk to us about obesity in the news media life cycle. So, um, very specifically about ethics, responsibility, and stigmatization. Yeah, I'm reading your slides for you. Yes. And carry on, you won't need to talk, but then I won't be able to answer questions. <laughs> so, thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here, and thanks to Andy and Roger for the organization. And um, to for coming now, I'll just ask that. So, um, we're starting some very early media images, they're three dimensional media, but I think that they kind of set the tone. Um, and this is the Venus of Willendorf, and it's not, you know, there's no writing associated with her, so we can't say exactly how she was created and for what, but um, I think she can be considered to possibly be a, a figure of worship and certainly a representation of plenty. Um, and this is the uh, mistress of animals from Chapelhug, and she's um, actually in the process of giving birth, so she can be seen as a figure of maturity. And this is the uh, chief of punk's wife, who's clearly represented in the yellow dress as being very large. And uh, I would say that they are a figure of power, maybe also of wealth and fertility. Um, uh, sadly, in the age of the internet, we seem to be looking at thanks for coming, Tom, um, looking at uh, large people as figures of fun. And I think that's a key theme in this um, in this talk is about whether we are. Um, contributing to the stigmatisation of people of size. You might say, well, this is a fun website, but it's quite clear from some of the comments that this site is set up to reinforce the message that if you just exercise a bit more and uh, eat a bit less, the whole issue of your weight will disappear. Um, now, a little quiz. Uh, can anybody make a guess about what size Sharon is? What sort of whether what sort of weight category would you put her into? You mean dress size or? Um, uh, well, it depends how you measure weight. But you know, there's BMI and there's um, weight status like um, underweight, normal, overweight, obese, morbidly obese, or you could guess a dress size if you like. I wouldn't. Um, dress sizes kind of morph from one country to another. Is anybody willing to hazard a guess? She looks normal. What a beautiful answer. Thank you. Any other guesses or comments? All right. Technically, Sharon is obese. That is a BMI of 30. So this is trying to support an argument that I'm making that we understand obesity to be very big. Now, um, this website is an important website from a social point of view because Kate Harding has set it up to demonstrate just how ridiculous the BMI standard is. So I think there's a major rift between public understandings of obesity and medical understandings. And if you look at the epidemiology, um, risk associated with weight actually starts below obese, below overweight. Technically, it starts at uh, the higher end of normal weight. So there's a bit of an issue here. But um, anyway, let's just use a, a, a chart which can be used to make estimates visually of weight, which I've used as an, uh, an analytical instrument. Have we got someone at the door? Any chance of letting um, Karen in, please? Thank you. Okay, um, <laughs> trying to watch the slide over the window. Okay, sorry, let me come back to the slide. Okay, so what I'm presenting visually is a chart which allows you to make decisions about weight status according to where you put on the chart. And just for fun, I popped all these people using their, their BMIs and their weight and height onto the chart. 
um, just to give you an idea of the relationship between what they look like and where they fit on a medical style chart. And a bit more fun, pop the Venus of Willendorf on there. Um, it's possible you could argue she'd be, she should be even further to the right, but you can still see her pudenda, so I'll put her in that category where on the chart, the, that is the cutoff between those two positions, whether or not you can see the mound of Venus. Now, um, as we've learned from quite a few of the speakers in this seminar, obesity is very complex. But I read the news and I know that it's not complex at all. It's very simple. You just eat less and move more and the problem will go away, assuming that you believe it is a problem, which of course is contested. Um, and just in case you're thinking that this is not receiving a sympathetic audience, if you look at the comments, they reinforce the message. Just eat less and move more and then you won't have a weight problem anymore. Okay, so why do we study the news? Because it's a major source of health information. It does influence understanding and attitudes, and there are quite a few examples, many examples, where uh, specific news events have been associated with specific changes in behaviour. Obviously, it's not a blanket change, not everybody does it. The other key interest for me is that news media reflect and report current discourses and current debates, and also framings, and I'll talk about framing in a minute. Um, and I believe that news and journalism can contribute to improving health. And on that wonderfully complex chart, um, obesity, sorry, media does actually get recognised as part of the obesogenic environment. It influences us in a number of different ways, including the way we consume it, largely sitting down or reclining, um, the food and drink that we consume when we're consuming media, but also the, main, the content of the media and that's um, what I'm hoping to investigate here. I think it's really important to state that the news media are not a public health information service. And it's very, um, uh, there's a danger when you analyse media that you say that the problem resides in the media, whereas actually the media is a place where public debates and discourses play out in struggles for meaning. Um, so journalists have their own professional values, they have their own expertise and practices. <coughs> And these shape news in ways which do not always suit medics, clinicians, public health promotion people. Um, critiques of media coverage have to take into account the economic climate and the professional values. So the economic climate means that more, fewer journalists are doing more work in a much more constrained environment. Um, a lot of people are trying to maximise their profits from news organisations by um, reducing the number of journalists and also actually making redundant some of the more senior experienced journalists, which has implications for health reporting and science reporting. Never forget that there are people who spend a lot of money and time trying to influence media content. Journalists are not just inventing these ideas, they're reporting them and they're getting them offered to them. So news values is not the same as evidence-based medicine or gold standard clinical research. Um, there's uh, people trying to promote health, they're up against massive um, industries with um, PR firms and advertising contracts which um, shape our uh, um, knowledge and visual environment in ways beyond just what's happening in the news media. Sometimes the media get it wrong, usually they'll do you a correction if they do. We need to think about whose frame is dominant. A frame um, 
a frame uh, defines a problem, it identifies causes, it assigns responsibility, and it points to particular solutions. The easiest example to think about is um, illicit drug use. If you focus on the criminality of using drugs which happen to be illegal this century, then you are going to be pointing towards a solution in the realm of punishment. If you think about illicit drugs as being addictive, then you're going to be pointing towards um, solutions around health care. Um, chronic disease is not a sex and use topic. That, there's a whole lecture in that. <laughs> this is important. I think Amy um, Clannon raised this in our conversation last week. She said, well, why, why is it that journalists don't get how gradual science is, how uncertain science is? Well, you know, journalists have to make decisions about what to put into their stories, so they have to um, focus on a particular aspect, and they don't usually have the luxury, the time, or the space to discuss the nuances, and that leads, contributes to this clash of cultures that I'm presenting here. So basically, media culture needs information fast, they need it nice and crisp and certain, um, and we need sources, we're very dependent on sources. Um, if you talk about Frankenstein's, we're going to quote you. If you say something, we're going to quote you. So. Don't say it if you don't want it in there. Um, we need to interview your patient to personalise and humanise the story. Um, and of course, public relations companies spend a lot of effort producing patients for those kinds of stories. Um, medical people focus on accuracy. They have a different view of what's important. They're very evidence-based in their approaches, mostly more so now than in the past. Um, they also think about dignity and um, I'm not going to go through the whole list, but uh, once bitten twice shy, I do meet a number of researchers and clinicians who feel they can't engage with the media because it's a little bit scary and they don't feel they have control over the process. So there are some issues there about um, the uh, relationship between science and the media. So um, under stigmatisation, I'm going to talk a little bit about depersonalisation, othering, blame and responsibility. In 2007, I joined a little team of international scholars noticing that these news pictures where you see people from behind or you see just their tummy or their head is cut off one way or another, those news pictures are focused in this area of weight. So the problem of obesity affects, or sorry, the problem of overweight and obesity affects two-thirds of Western populations. Obesity nudging between a quarter and a third and another third of the population is overweight. But what we see when we look at television are these bodies, and that pushes the problem, our understanding of the problem, over to these very large bodies. So in 2007, I asked, do TV news images hinder prevention? So there's two key issues. Do these images take us away from an understanding of where the health risks of weight begin, and do they contribute to stigmatisation? Uh, Charlotte Cooper um, is a PhD, well she was a PhD student in 2007, I imagine she's graduated by now, but the point is that she noticed the headless fatties and she went online, she used new media to highlight this routinisation of um, the use of pictures of large people with their heads missing. Um, she asserts that she invented the, the phrase headless fatty. I have no evidence to suggest that she did not. But she and I, both in the same year, started talking about this. Uh, so she's talking about heads cropped out, how the headless fatty has become a staple of news journalism, and how large people are presented as objects, as symbols, and as a collective problem. And uh, Pugh and Hoyer um, over in uh, Yale have been looking at 
the way in which the media presents overweight and obesity. And in this study, they reviewed literature and they said that weight bias does exist in the news media and we have moderate evidence to support that claim. And more recently, um, um, Pure and colleagues have produced an analysis of um, the, the proportion of headlessness in news media. And what they find is very striking that 47% of people of size are shown headless compared with only 4% of non-obese. They've got a very interesting study with other uh, stigmatising images which we don't have time to discuss. And among children, there's a similar ratio. 46% of children of size are shown without their heads and 10% are not overweight. There are reasons why journalists use these pictures and we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, so using Theo van Leeuwen's book, The Visual Representation of Social Actors, um, we uh, decided to investigate distance and interaction. But this, uh, today I'm just going to talk about interaction. So basically, I'm currently direct, um, not, not addressing you directly because I'm looking to one side. Now I'm addressing you directly. So should you choose to meet your eyes to mine, our gazes can meet. And that's a different social relation. So uh, my research assistant, uh, Philip Mills, and I developed a coding strategy. We put together a sample of television news from 2008 and 2010, and also current affairs. And we also brought in one episode of The Biggest Loser, because it's such an influential show and very apposite to this research. What we found was, when you look at who's actually in the picture, most of the people in news and current affairs are actually normal weight people. Now, that's partly because television usually involves an anchor and a journalist physically present. Um, morbidly obese and obese people made up a, a, more than a third of the news people, the shots of news people shown. Overweight people, only 8%. So not only are we depersonalising and taking the heads off of people of size, we're also not really showing what overweight looks like. Um, and there's a similar pattern in current affairs, but there's even fewer people of size being represented. In The Biggest Loser, obese people make up 70%. Um, and again, overweight us um, not very well represented. So we're starting to build a picture of understanding obesity through these visual um, images of people of size, which tend to squeeze out people who are merely overweight. This is our data on, um, on headlessness. This is um, in the process of being prepared for publication. It's not published yet. Um, and so what we see is that if you look at news coverage in the left-hand slide, that um, if you're obese, you're very likely to have be presented with no head showing. Um, and that means that you can't meet the gaze of the notion of you. And obviously, when you're on television, you can't really meet the gaze. But socially, there is this meeting the gaze. And if you look at advertisements, you'll find that many advertisements use the allure of direct eye contact as part of the way of building a relationship between you and the person in a piece of printed media or on television. Um, also, very effective morbidly obese. If you are of a healthy weight, then your um, head is going to be shown most of the time. And in current affairs, it's a similar pattern, although they've managed to behead some overweight people. And The Biggest Loser, only a very small proportion of people shown in The Biggest Loser have their heads removed. And I think these are probably um, linking, um, linking shots where um, you move from the very personal stories that you get. The Biggest Loser is not like news in current affairs. It's very much allowing people to tell their own story. It's a very important site for uh, people of size to be able to express their own opinions. Okay, so um, news and current affairs about weight shows mostly people of a healthy weight 
when larger people show us, they're mostly represented by very large people. Um, only the biggest loser shows mostly people of larger size. So I think that professional media issues may be shaping these portrayals. Access, do you know people of size to interview? Consent, do you have time to ask their consent? Will they be willing to be interviewed in a story where they're going to be linked with the word obese, which I think we're beginning to understand is actually quite a rude word. And honestly, the larger the size, the more dramatic the features. Okay, so um, thanks to Philip Mills, a research assistant for contributing to design, coding, and analysis. Okay, just a little solution to cheer us up along the way. The Yale Red Centre for Food Policy and Obesity has created a gallery of both still photographs and video. So this is providing a resource which is copyright free, allowing news media if they want, or anybody else if they want, to use those pictures in order to illustrate the issue of weight without um, using stigmatizing images. So we also look at what makes news, and the value of looking at what makes news is it allows people who are trying to um, get particular messages out into the community to understand what it is that attracts journalists' attention to the question of weight and inactivity. When we looked at um, 50 television items about overweight and obesity uh, published in the Medical Journal Australia, uh, we found that modern medical miracles dominated. Now that's your very sciencey end of things and it's more likely to be a treatment for people who are very large. If you're in public health, you're very much interested in prevention, so that's very downstream in the public health terms. We need action upstream. Quirky news, wine may help weight loss. Not sure that's true, but there we go. It got in there. Someone found a study doing it. Um, and those are the kinds of things. I'm not going to go through the whole because we've got other things to talk about. So modern med medical miracles will save the day. Um, right, this is new data coming out of our study. Um, and this is a new set of TV uh, shows from 2008, 9, 10 and 11 about overweight and obesity. Um, the focus is, uh, starts out as on the size of the problem and causes um, and solutions grow um, in attention over time. So these are change over time. Uh, failed solutions don't get much of a thing. People have criticised the news media for focusing on the health effects, but in fact health effects, I think, are relatively underrepresented. Depends a bit on whether you're talking about the main thrust of the story or if you're picking up every single detail through the story. Um, discrimination, hardly on the radar. Two-thirds of the population are overweight or obese. About between a quarter and a third are obese. They're probably experiencing dis discrimination every day but it's not getting much coverage. Here we have um, the newspaper analysis that we're um, writing up also. Um, and again, it's size of the problem and causes and solutions um, start out um, as, size of the problem and causes start out as the big news with solutions, and then solutions really takes off as the community gets together and starts launching solutions. Regulation um, gets a good look in there too. But uh, if you look at the previous slide, you'll find that regulation um, has a peak over here in uh, 2009, but it falls off again. And if you want to change the obesogenic environment, then you have to focus on uh, structural level interventions. Sorry about the slide jumping. The other thing is that our studies show that there's not a lot of attention to inactivity. There's just been a bit more recently about the dangers of sitting, following on some new research which shows that sitting, prolonged sitting, is bad for you. Um, but it's quite hard, and this study shows you that um, inactivity actually contributes more to disease and death than overweight and obesity, although not as much as smoking. Um, so we're finding that it's not getting the same kind of um, crisis reporting. 
sorry, inactivity is not getting the same kind of crisis reporting as overweight. Um, and the journalists that we've been interviewing saying inactivity is not very newsworthy and it's very hard to describe and to illustrate. Here's Josephine Chow's study. She actually, with a little help from me, but mostly her work, she showed how much coverage obesity gets in comparison with physical activity. It's just not getting the same kind of coverage. Now, as I said before, a frame defines a problem, identifies causes, attributes blame or responsibility, and points to preferred solutions. That's drawing on the work of Robert Entman. So we analysed what the causes were, and there was a very strong focus on nutrition, and um, the both means to both um, nutrition and inactivity. Inactivity, very um, neglected in that um, sample. And we also looked at what is the dominant message about who is held responsible in these TV shows, uh, news items, I should say. And the individual is held responsible in 66% and the parents cop it in 12%. Industry gets a look in, but not much, and society doesn't get much blame. So we're very much building a picture of individual responsibility. When we looked at television-related uh, reporting physical activity, we found again, a strong influence, a strong um, message that parents, individuals, and individuals with help are the main people responsible for, for physical activity. Although industry did get a, a bigger look in the physical activity news. Um, when we asked members of the public what they thought, they said 38% of the comments said 30, uh, that um, individuals are responsible and 28% said parents and families. So there's a very powerful message building up that it's all about the individual and their family if they're children. So individuals are mostly responsible for physical activity. There's a resistance to nanny state interventions. Inactivity is more likely to be linked to obesity than to death even though a lot of people have been very frustrated by finding that they up, their, they up their physical activity and they don't actually lose weight. They may become fitter and healthier, but they don't get that beauty benefit from losing weight. Okay, so this is my first intervention in 2007, which was meant to be a resource to try and invite journalists to think about obesity in situations beyond blaming the individual. And it goes with a list of people to phone up. Um, and we're just updating that list, and we're updating this, well, I'm writing a new, a new intervention for journalists. Um, and I'm hoping to write an intervention for people trying to engage with journalists, researchers, clinicians, public health people, health promotion people. So I don't know how much time I've got for ethics. And um, a bit of time for ethics. All right, so I'm focusing on journalism ethics as a practicing journalist who's been a medical writer for seven years, a general journalist for 15 years. Um, I've tried to think about how the code of ethics is, can be used to analyse um, the way coverage is being handled, but there obviously are. There's research ethics, showing respect for my participants, um, and industry ethics, which is a big question about how industry shapes our environment. And also, um, quite a few people are starting to notice that uh, research institutions and medical journals and clinical journals should take care when they issue press releases, because with journalists working so hard these days, there's a, a risk that um, press releases will be reproduced in the news media with very little change. Okay, so um, viewers, we interviewed 46 members of the public from five different weight categories, and quite a few of them felt that the news was doing a good job, that it was important to highlight the problem of obesity, and that it was normally fairly factual. So I, I don't think that there's a great feeling that journalists are not doing a good job if you ask 
members of the public. Now, our sample members of the public were um, chosen on the basis that they did consume news. Um, but they do have a few things that they don't like, and the uh, media use the obese word more than overweight and focus on extremes. So the public is picking up on these patterns themselves. Um, and they, they would really like to see a bit more solutions and positive ways of um, handling the issue of weight. Okay, so this is the code of ethics for the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. It's freely available online. I'm certainly not going to read it to you. But I've tried to use it as a framework for analysis. So uh, the point one is report and interpret honestly, striving for accuracy, fairness and disclosure of all essential facts. That's quite a challenge when you've only got 125 words for a story. But you try. Striving is the, the, the verb here. Um, so when we ask journalists, they are committed to accuracy, um, but they do have a, a pattern of sourcing. Now, we were interviewing health and medical journalists, so finding that they often use health and medical sources is no surprise, but that does start to build a frame of obesity being a medical problem. Um, and if you read Abigail Saggy's new book, What is Wrong with Fat?, you'll find that just using the word obesity is actually presenting the issue of weight as a medical problem which requires individual intervention. Okay, so um, I think that there's, um, there is a, medicine does focus on the per person rather than the public health focus which is on populations and environments. Um, this is uh, not for publication. Um, we've got, looking at newspaper news, we've got, uh, at the top you'll see how many news actors were present in each of our newspaper samples. Um, and you'll see that um, in all of those four years, doctors and clinicians were the preferred sources. They were the third most common, first most common, third most common, or first most common source of interview, comment, quotation in the newspapers. Politicians were absolutely off the radar in 2000. We had a big splurge in 2005 and 2006, which was actually the peak of coverage of overweight obesity, but it's fallen away a little bit. So if you want a structural intervention to address the issue of weight and inactivity, you have to be engaging with the political process. So they've gone from seventh to second and first, and they're back in third. People of size, fourth place, seventh place, eighth place, seventh place. Maybe it's hard to find people of size, even though two-thirds of the population are large. Okay. Um, sorry. <laughs> so, striving for accuracy. So, when we look at news angles, we show that the news focuses on the size of the problem, the causes, and the solutions. Um, some stories do cover socio-economic causes, but we mustn't... I'm not, I don't wish to convey the impression that journalists are not paying attention to structural interventions and the advertising environment, the food environment, the beverage environment, that would be wrong. But it's about the overall pattern, and the solutions tend to focus on individuals. And the widespread mantra is eat less and move more. As I said, obesity may be complex, but it's perceived to be a simple thing which can be solved with this um, intervention. Okay, so there's a relative lack of focus on industry or government. The campaigns to cut sugar, fat, and soft drinks. Mexico's just up the ante there. Uh, curb advertising to children and discrimination, I think you saw before, received less than 3% of the attention. Um, striving for fairness. Is it fair to focus so much on obesity statistics, medical research, individual stories? And I should add here the economic burden caused by people of size. Um, are the key industries, are the government industries, are they being held to account? That's one of the jobs of journalism. <coughs> 
How often do we interview them? Are people with weight issues actually asked their opinion? And does news coverage objectify people with, a, um, with weight as a problematic other? So those are some of the issues that can relate. Just from point one, um, I'm not going to talk about faceless fatties again, but I think it does actually contribute to the idea that um, obesity is a problem of a very large, and if you're only this big, you don't have to worry about it. Um, do not give distorting emphasis. I think there's a growing, growing worldwide growing feeling that the pictures used to abstract stories about overweight and obesity are distorting the issue, or also denying people a chance to meet our gaze. That makes us into voyeurs and objects of the people who are outside. They are generic stereotypes and thus not treated as people or individuals like us. Okay, so obesity has only just been recognised as a disease. There's been a debate going on whether it's a disease since about the mid-70s. Um, the AMA, the American Medical Association, has recognised it. Um, another question, is it a disability? I've just seen a poster which says one in three people has a disability. Well, if you think weight is a disability, it's two... Um, so uh, obviously the larger you are, the more likely you are to be physically um, constrained by your size. Okay, But overweight is surely a personal characteristic and the, the focus on large people eating and sitting around could be argued to be an unnecessary emphasis. So I think the other underpinning question here, and, and, and I don't think journalists will necessarily feel this because it's not just journalists who have this, I think the underpinning the believe the dominant discourse in society is that individuals are responsible for their own weight um, and this is a common sense um, understanding. But if this is our belief as journalists, then is this undermining our commitment to accuracy, fairness and independence? So some of the journalists we interviewed were well aware of the social drivers and the environmental drivers of obesity, but quite a few of them really felt that in the end, responsibility is the individual's responsibility. Okay, the other thing is I think that if we, we, if we envision obesity as people of very large size, then I think that the, um, the journalists will look around them and say, well, I don't know anybody in that category, um, so I don't really need to think about them as consumers of news or people whose stories should be followed up. And that's why I think discrimination is highly on there. Now, um, been thinking about this. Chris Ristle and um, Adrian Emerson and myself and Ben Smith wrote and did an analysis of Sydney and Melbourne newspaper coverage of cycling. And I've only just come to the conclusion that we might actually have a situation that where journalists are understanding cycling through the eyes of people who drive cars. <laughs> so um, this is our paper here in um, BMC Public Health 2010. And we compared the two newspapers, uh, sorry, two sets of newspapers from two cities. And what we found is that Melbourne was significantly more um, positively oriented towards cycling than um, Sydney um, and less negative. But the good news is that the negativity, the, pos the positive coverage is increasing as a proportion of coverage and negative um, coverage is decreasing. Um, we looked at how cycling was framed and separately how cyclists were framed and we found that cycling gets a lot of positive framing it's, um, and the main negative framing around cycling is that it's risky to cyclists and risky to non-cyclists. When we look at poor old cyclists, they're brave, harmless, healthy and safety conscious 
And then we've got all these frames of them as irresponsible lawbreakers, pariahs, a danger to others, extremists, inconvenience in the minority. It's very important to frame them as being in the minority because then you don't have to pay for new cycle tracks. Badly behaved substance abusers. They are And before we did that study, we actually read on the internet of a blogger who wrote on the internet that he felt that a path that was currently used by cyclists should have a wire strung across the path and neck cyclists at neck height in order to catch some cyclists and basically go up them. So um, I have to ask the question, if we as journalists are drivers, is this affecting our ability to report on cycling? And just to remind you that it's not just journalists who are saying these things. I found this in Summertown. Pavements are for people, not cyclists. Now, if ever there was a clearer statement that cyclists are not people, I haven't seen this. It's true. That's a law. It's true. I don't care. They're still people. They're people on bicycles. (laughs) Sorry. Um, So, I think we're starting to get the picture we're not supposed to let our beliefs interfere with our journalism. So by the way we present obesity, it is actually interfering with our ability to alert people to the health risks of overweight and obesity. Now there's a big debate over the health risks of um, overweight and obesity and the new paper by Kramer and colleagues suggests that there really is a relationship between weight and illness, whether or not you have metabolic um, disturbances. So the fact-fit debate is hotting up again, but um, the fact remains that the epidemiological studies do link overweight and obesity with very specific diseases, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and quite a few different kinds of cancer. They usually don't specify, I believe, bowel cancer and endometrial cancer are two cancers linked to obesity, which hardly ever get mentioned. So we need to ask, are we contributing to the stigma by framing it as an individual responsibility and a threat to national health budget? All right. These are um, slides which I presented to the World Journalism Education Conference, so I'm going to leave them out. They can be um, accessed through my paper, which is published online. So I think the media are likely to be influencing understandings and health behaviours. I think they may be contributing to stigma by recirculating the rhetoric of choice and lifestyle. Lots of people who are dedicated to reducing the health impacts of weight are using the word lifestyle without understanding that when you say lifestyle, you mean that people are choosing their lifestyle, um, which I think is really blaming the individual in in an inappropriate way. Um, Individual focus may undermine support for structural interventions, and I think that's a key point. And of course, the nanny state rhetoric. There's a lot of people who have a vested interest in avoiding anything that can be labelled as nanny state interventions, even though nanny state has saved us from flying through windscreens because we're not wearing a seatbelt, from drowning our toddlers in the swimming pool, and from um, smoking ourselves to death. So nanny state interventions are appropriate, but they're very easy to demonise as interfering with individual freedom. Um, media may be contributing to denial. If you look at the literature, a lot of papers show that people say, oh yes, obesity is a problem, but not for me. Oh yes, obesity is a problem, but my child is not obese or even overweight. Okay, um, so the media appear to neglect liquid calories, which is a very strong driver of weight gain, um, and pay very little attention to inactivity, although, as I said, it's got better recently. Um, not much about advertising except when there's an ongoing campaign which has got some good media coverage um, 
and uh, interrogating choices of government where they seem to be being influenced by industry. Um, we've had a very recent turnaround in Britain on the tobacco front where there was strong resistance to plain packaging, which we now have in Australia, um, and there's just been a recent turnaround, and plain packaging, I believe, is going to be adopted. Although I've noticed that the packaging in Britain will be virginal white rather than um, yucky olive green, as we're getting in Australia. Okay, Cohen's paper, I would just like to draw your attention to Cohen's paper from 2008, in which she uh, identifies 10 neurophysiological reasons why we make poor choices and that they're not really choices because we're vulnerable to advertising. We are overwhelmed by choices which are hard to um, understand. The nutritional labelling is a fantastic example of how we are given lots of information which don't really um, facilitate easy choice. Um, I'm an advocate of traffic light labelling. Um, which is another story. Okay, um, so policy changes require coalitions and public support, um, and these are both affected by media framing and agenda setting. Prevention requires reshaping nutritional activity, political and cultural environments, engaging people on weight gain trajectories. This is the key thing, the focus on, um, if, we, if, we, if we frame obesity as for very large people, then interventions that are focused on people who are merely overweight or even just heading for overweight, um, we're missing out on the opportunity to prevent obesity. And as many people of size have realised, it's very, very hard to lose weight once you put it on. And even if you do lose it, it's very hard to sustain weight loss. Industry invested interests use lack of evidence or evidence of disagreement to delay and weaken policy change. Just look at what they're doing in climate change and tobacco. And um, the work of Frank Shalupka at the University of Illinois, Chicago, um, has really um, focused exactly on the way in which the tobacco strategies are now being employed in overweight industries. And I think we need new evidence of everyday experiences of the obesogenic and stigmatizing environment. And I've mentioned this to a few people in the room, but I think that we can use new journalism techniques and crowdsourcing and citizen journalism to gather that information to highlight just how difficult it is to make what people call healthy choices. So the media can contribute to solutions by modelling healthy nutrition, um, carrying health promoting advertising, investigating industry and governmental drivers and solutions um, to obesity, framing inactivity as a crisis, clarifying the relationship between health, inactivity and weight, investigating social and industry barriers which deny Australians the physical activity we need. I mean, workplaces, I see Stanley's got a standing desk, I have a standing desk at work, um, but most people can't even imagine using their computer standing up. They just can't get their brains around it and their workplaces certainly don't want to spend a thousand bucks on a, a sit-stand desk. Sympathetic portrayal of people. So, researchers, public health people, clinicians, um, policy makers, everybody who's engaged in the idea of trying to use their work to promote health can also contribute by engaging with the news media, getting to know journalists, um, disseminating their results in uh, media-friendly ways. The conversation is one excellent way to um, bridge that gap between the peer-reviewed journal, which is often behind the paywall, um, and um, the wider public. Um, don't be nasty to fat people. Good on the Daily Mail, it's a lovely story. It's sourced to the National Health Service and it's aimed at doctors. So it's okay for other people to be nasty as long as doctors are not nasty. I'm extrapolating slightly here. My favourite cartoonist, Kathy Wilcox, has um, started to imagine an end to the uh, 
wrapping processed food up like Christmas presents. So this is a high protein bar. This is not part of Kathy's cartoon. This is an example of the Christmas wrapping paper being wrapped around processed food. But over here, we've got the uh, plain packs in the olive green as promised by the Australian government. Um, we've also got chippies, hot chippies, sugar pop, burgers, and lollipops. I'll leave the other ones out. So, Maybe we could change the packaging to make them less annoying. Which one do you want to read? Oh, may film you having sex without your consent. Okay, this is an allusion to a scandal in the American, uh, sorry, in the Australian training, military training college where um, new technologies were used to film somebody having sex with their boyfriend without consent. So I'd very much like to thank my own university for letting me come on the sabbatical. Um, the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism for um, inviting me to apply to be a visiting fellow. And Professor Stanley Lujacek, who was very encouraging of my visit and invited me to talk today. You for being here. Thank you for taking time out on such a freezing, windy day. The 17 media producers interviewed so far, and the 46 members of the public who gave a fair knowledge and wisdom. Um, my research assistants are Marie McKenzie, Philip Mills, Kale Bain, Alice Blaine, and assisted by Dr. Shadmar Iskandarai and Dr. Catherine Deans, who are both experts in en vivo um, analysis. And um, my colleagues and mentors are listed there. Um, so thank you very much for the chance to speak. And uh, if you've got any questions, I'll do my best to answer them. Thank you. Mm -hmm.